0: 3.43 All us bitches should leave work at 3.43 Cos time is money and money is time And since I'm being paid for 84% of my men We're fucking
1: off and going home At 3.43 Hey, where are you going? Don't you know? On a national average we're only being paid until 3.43. So we're gonna go do some fun shit. It's probably not a
2: viable long-term solution, but it just feels good. Wanna come? Yeah.
1: She had a chain that was donated by the uh, Painters and Dockers Union. She went down to the Commonwealth building and she chained herself to the front of the building while other protesters, uh, women protesters, march up and down with placards trying to kick up a stink and cause attention. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. If it's a challenge to uncover
3: the history of worker struggle here at home in the United States, it can be even harder to find out about it in other countries. So I was really excited to come across today's story from Australia, Melbourne, to be exact. And in fact, I've been to Melbourne. My best friend Michael lives there, but I'd never heard of Zelda DePrano until I heard her story on the wonderful On the Job podcast it seems that one day in 1969 zelda took her lunch break and proceeded to chain herself to the front door of a busy building in downtown melbourne in a protest that caused a sensation who was zelda and what was she protesting about you'll find out on today's show and stick around after the on the job segment To hear Zelda, in her own words, reveal the real story behind where that chain came from. Plus, we've got an equal rights music bonus track. Also this week, we bring you Labor History in Two from today's date in 1922, 1930, and 2003. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Right? How Here's you know the that? show.
0: Girl, guess what? Your pay gap is 53%, so that means you get to go home and... 3.43. Oh! <laughs> three. All those pictures
4: should be for a cat. This time is money, money is time. And since I'm being paid, you're 84% of mine.
0: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1922. That was the day Chicago building trades began to split over the much-hated Landis Award. The building trades had always enjoyed strong solidarity, built through years of sympathy strike action. By 1921, they were involved in a bitter dispute with the city's employers who had been on the open shop offensive since the end of World War I. Contractors attempted to impose deep wage cuts and instituted a lockout when the building trades refused to go along. Judge Kennesaw Landis, who sent close to 100 IWW members to prison during World War I, arbitrated the dispute and issued his award that fall. Considered a major blow to the building trades, his award outlined eight points on behalf of the employers. It imposed deep wage cuts of anywhere from 15 to 40 percent, practically abolished the right to strike, and undermined years of established work rules. As the Chicago Federation of Labor and Building Trades Council geared up for the fight, the employers created their own Citizens Committee to enforce the award. The Chicago Federation of Labor noted that of the committee's 176 members, only 54 were based in the city, and of those, only one had any connection with the industry. And on this day, the Chicago Building Trades Council called for a strike. Some unions refused to abide by the call. The building trades split with the carpenters and painters among those in favor of striking versus the bricklayers, electrician, and ironworkers voting to honor the award. A reported 60,000 building tradesmen walked off the job anyway, but the strike soon failed. The trades continued to erode the award's strength, and by 1926, many local agreements simply superseded its enforcement. Labor History in 2 brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show.
2: On The Job, the the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here for our summer series, our history series, and it's been... Great fun to sort of delve into the history of the labour movement in Australia, workers' movements, because there are so many great characters and so many great stories that haven't been told or have been forgotten. And over the summer, we're going to bring you plenty of them with our very own Dr. Liam Byrne. He's the Historical Oracle, and he joins us again on the podcast today.
1: Good day, Francis. How, How are you, going? Dr. Liam? Excellent, mate. Great to be here with you again. Uh,
2: Thank you for coming in. As I said, I'm really looking forward to our summer series because we'll get to talk about a whole bunch of people who have done incredible stuff and sometimes because history is written by by a particular class of person, who might not (laughs) be that interested in the the history of of working class people and labour movements. We get written out of history, but we're here to, to correct that balance a little bit, aren't we?
1: That's right, Francis. I think it's one of the things that you see consistently over, you know, it's not just in Australia, it's country after country, is that so many millions of people who've actually contributed to social change they just get forgotten uh, they make massive contributions to you know the things that we enjoy and take for granted as our rights but their names are lost uh, oftentimes their images are lost we can't even see what they look like but we're living their legacy we're you know we're continuing to build and enjoy the sort of rights that they won for us and we're trying to build a better world that they imagined as well so it's really important that we do keep in mind that when we read the history books, there's going to be certain characters who are there, but there's also going to be a lot of people who should be there who are missing. Well, let's uh, correct the
2: record a little bit and start with an incident in 1969. And it's a famous story in union circles about a woman who chained herself to the doors of a building holding a sign that basically kicked up a firestorm about gender rights, pay equity, and issues we're still fighting about today. Her name was Zelda De Prano. Tell us about
1: Zelda. Well, Zelda is one of the most incredible union uh, activists of the 20th century all time. Uh, I love telling her story and reading about her story. She was born in um, Carlton uh, in Melbourne and grew up in working class, a very working class suburb as it was then. It's changed a little bit now. And she was born in the late 1920s. So her early experiences were of the Great Depression um, and its effects. So a horrible time for working people. She entered the workforce when she was uh, 14, you know, sort of early teens, like many working class people did. And she began to enter the workforce and to lose a lot of jobs very quickly because she went into a lot of Melbourne factories, like a lot of other working class women at the time, and absolutely refused to put up with the indignities and a terrible work condition. So she kicked up a stink and met recrimination from employers very, very quickly because of that. So she was a rabble rouser and a rebel from a very, very early age. She got political and joined the Communist Party. She became uh, a qualified dental nurse. Um, and was a very, very strong unionist. And also I should say that within both the union movement and the Communist Party, it was not afraid at all to point out sexism within those organisations and to challenge it.
2: Which at the time would have been quite a brave thing to do and, and would, have been, would have kicked up a major storm because it wasn't the done thing.
1: Absolutely. And you know there is a long history of union women um, tackling sexism within the workplace, within society, but also within the movement itself. Um, and, you know, Zelda very much stood on their shoulders, but also herself had an incredible legacy that uh, she sort of led. And it's one of the reasons why she became so well-known and the reason she became so well-loved in the movement, particularly by working class women, but uh, more broadly as well, was because she wasn't willing to just accept it. She wanted a better world. She was willing to campaign for it. She was willing to fight for it. And she did what she thought was necessary.
2: Okay. So take us to 1969. What did she do?
1: So it's a really incredible story. So Zelda, by this point, was working for the Meatworkers Union. Uh, and the Meat Workers was one of two unions which took a case for equal pay to the Arbitration Commission in 1969 in June. So Zelda was there every day. The uh, case was argued for by the Australian Council of Trade Unions and its advocate, who may may not be aware for uh, one of the, the last times, was Bob Hawke. And Zelda uh, sort of speaks in her memoirs about how terrible it was as a, a woman worker to be sitting in this commission day in, day out, and you would hear four male judges running events, and then the male advocate for the ACTU, and then the male lawyers for the employers sitting there debating the rights of working women while working women were sitting in the stands silently. The result of this case was a a very, very small step forward, and it led to equal pay for women who did the exact same type of work in the exact same industries as men. However, that was only about 18% of the workforce, because one of the things that's happened um, in the Australian economy is that large sections of industries which are dominated by women have been systematically undervalued because of sexism. But Zelda was desperately afraid that after this decision that people were just going to say, all right, well, job done. We've got some form of equal pay. We can put that issue away. We don't have to worry about it anymore. And she was saying, no, this is still a major issue for all the rest of the women who haven't got equal pay. So, what she decided to do was to make a stand and to kick up a stink about this. So, she had a chain that was donated by the uh, Painters and Dockers Union. She went down to the Commonwealth building, which was where a number of the Commonwealth government officers were, and she chained herself to the front of the building while other protesters, uh, women protesters, marched up and down with placards trying to kick up a stink and cause attention. And the reason for this was it was to make the point that equal pay wasn't a reality. Even though you had a case with some small positives, and that was great, it still wasn't fully there and they were going to keep the campaign going. And so it's really important to capture that public attention and also attention within the movement to say this issue is not going away until it's actually you know, we actually have equality.
2: So there she is. She's got her uh, comrades protesting alongside. She's chained to the Commonwealth building, the big building where That's all the right. public servants work. What did her sign say?
1: So the sign basically said that no difference in the basic rates between men and women. One rate only. One rate only. So the reason for this was that if people are aware, I mean, without going into – I find industrial relations and arbitration history extremely interesting. I know some people don't. This is what we're here for, Liam. But the the, the basis of the Australian system at that point was um, under arbitration, which was a, a court would hear workers and employers sort of argue about what an agreement should be. And it was a very famous decision in 1907 that led to the basic wage. It's called the Sunshine Harvester Decision. So, the basic wage was the minimum wage. Australia was the first place in the world to have a minimum wage. They just called it something different then. The problem was that the minimum wage was set for men. And so, it was based upon what it was considered a man would need as a breadwinner to care for his family. And so, women workers weren't included in that. So, there was a male rate and then women had a separate rate, which was half of what the male rate was. Now, over years, uh, women workers were able to get that rate up but it still, it wasn't equal. And so the point that Zelda was saying was that this entire basis of the system that delineates between men and women shouldn't exist. If you work and you do work that's either the same or of comparable value, you should get paid the same, as simple as that. And that was the point that they were trying to make, that that sort of basis of the system, that gender division, that shouldn't exist.
2: What was the reaction to a protest?
1: Well, the reaction was pretty uh, fierce. It was pretty strong. I mean, But also it it went down extremely well uh, within the union movement, particularly amongst women workers. So one thing that happened is that We often talk about the protest that Zelda did, which is not totally true because actually she did two protests of a very similar nature because it was popular enough and it got enough attention that two members of the teachers union got in contact with Zelda and said, this is wonderful. We want to help out. Uh, We want to do the same. So actually 10 days later, they went down to the Arbitration Commission uh, building, which was in Little Burke Street uh, here in Melbourne. Go visit if you want. 451 Little Burke Street. Different building now, but you can see the place. And they did the exact same protest. Again, they chained themselves to the Arbitration Commission building. Uh, and it's this really wonderful story of Zelda's memoirs where she says it was great to see all the really important people. I did that in quotation marks for everybody who's not Francis. <laughs> having to stoop under them to try and sort of like go into the building. Oh, because wouldn't it be great to have pictures them. of that. <laughs> and it's just, you know, this is the sort of thing that, again, the way that the whole system was set up was that you would have the so-called important people, the experts, the judges, the lawyers who go and sort of deliberate about the lives of working people Often with working people not being particularly well represented, as was the case in that, that first arbitration court hearing. Moments like this, moments like protests are about bringing reality to those people and to those structures of power and about saying, no, you cannot go about your business day by day as you expect, like business as usual, without listening to us and understanding what the issues actually are. And that's what um, women like Zelda managed to achieve in this period. They would refuse to allow the issues that working women were facing to be hypothetical. I've just got to mention this. Another really, really amazing thing that she did not too long after this. So the rate for women was set at 75% of the male rate for most women. Her and a fellow activist a couple of years later had this major protest on trams in Melbourne. Where What they did was just back in the days when they used to have conductors, was they'd go sit on the tram and when the conductors came to ask them to pay for a ticket, they would pay 75% of the ticket. Genius. And when the structure said, oh, that's not the price, I said, well, this is what women earn. So, again, all these little moments which, you know, Taken together, they're all about making sure that women's real lived experience are actually shown, it's demonstrated. It's not something that can just slip past the conversation. Policymakers, the so called important people, have to hear women.
2: Would have been a bit confronting for the movement, too, because the union movement, like would have and still does, believes that it represents all working people and believes very much at its core in a sense of equality and, uh, and a commitment to collective action. But you're right, it was a man's world. So, how did the movement deal with being confronted with its own structural sexism?
1: Yeah, so just some background that the movement adopted a formal policy in support of equal pay in 1941. And that was largely as a result of women activists such as Muriel Hegney, um, who's a particular hero of mine and the Council of Action for Equal Pay. So there's a formal position there. But of course, there's always a difference between a formal position and whether or not everybody supports it. And the union movement is literally a movement of millions. So there's many different sort of perspectives. I think Bob Hawke's quite interesting as an example of this. So I said he was the advocate for the Equal Pay ca- uh, case in 1969. He supported that demand, of course, but he, he was not somebody who was known for progressive attitudes towards women. He was uh, he did express many sexist attitudes at this time, um, as is many others. And s- subsequently, he was challenged on that, and he did change some of those ideas. Some others he didn't. But it was highly confronting for many men in the movement. Uh, Particularly uh, many of the leaders who didn't like the idea that their historic claims and, and control over the issues of the movement were being challenged and this, you know, is of course, is what women's liberation did more broadly in um, other parts of society, and this is very much connected to the union movement here and spearheaded by union women, was it challenged those structures of power and forced people to question their own assumptions. And that's never a comfortable process, but it's a necessary one if we're actually going to demonstrate our principles of solidarity in action.
2: And I imagine Zelda would have copped a fair bit of heat from uh, people who weren't sympathetic to her position too. I mean, she put herself right out there, didn't she?
1: That's right. Even within the Meat Workers Union, this was not supported by the leadership. As I should have mentioned, actually, that the, the process that she did in June, she went on her lunch break. She didn't do that as an employee of the union. She did that on her lunch break. And the chain was donated by the painters and docker's union, but she had to go buy the locks herself. You know, there was still this, in that case, a very literal personal cost, but more broadly, there was a personal cost to her reputation, to, you know, her position with the movement. It was, you know, difficult to get a position working for other unions when, you know, the leadership of her union was quite antagonistic to some of the things that she did. These are the realities of what women had to face at that time if they weren't in a union that had a supportive position. And, of course, some unions did have far more supportive positions than others
2: So how long did it take for Zelda's demands to be met? Oh, are we still waiting? I think we're still waiting, aren't we?
1: We're absolutely still waiting for the reality of equal pay. Uh, The legal changes to equal pay were made. So in 1969, that case uh, only applied to some women workers. In 1972, the AC2 brought another case, this time uh, underneath the uh, Whitlam government. Uh, And on the 15th of December, a new ruling was put forward for equal pay for work of comparable value or of equal value. So, that then led to the legal recognition of the right to equal pay across industries. And in 1974, there was another case which ended the practice of having different minimum wages for men and women. So, 1974 is the point where the legal right existed. But of course, all union members know that there's a major difference between a legal right existing abstractly, and it being the lived reality and a practical reality for working people. And women workers have had to continue to campaign to have that right to equal pay recognised to demonstrate that their work is comparable, the you know sexist indignity that women workers constantly have to go to demonstrate that their work is com- of comparable value. And of course, we know the gender gap still exists. The gender gap then um, you know is connected to the gap in insecure work. Women are more likely to be in insecure work positions. That then affects superannuation. So the lived reality of equal pay, we are still very far from achieving that. But that shouldn't diminish the fact that for those such as Zelda who pushed a legal basis of it, that that was a huge step forward compared to where they were. And so we're very much continuing her proud legacy today.
2: Tell me about Zelda's life after the protests and what she went on to do because I'd imagine that she continued to uh, challenge authority and uh, campaign and be an activist her entire life.
1: (laughs) And became extremely well-loved. There's a a tribute to her at Trades Hall here in Melbourne. She wrote a lot. She wrote some um, beautiful books, one of, of her own experiences, a memoir One on another campaigner for equal pay, Kath Williams. Uh, she was a feminist organiser, as I mentioned, an activist involved in a series of campaigns connected to women's liberation. Uh, and as late as the uh, ASU's campaign in uh, between 2010 and 2012 for equal pay in the community sector. She was speaking at rallies. She was rabble-rousing. You know, she was somebody who really continued that sort of fiery um, legacy and was deeply, deeply loved for it.
2: Zelda Toprano, we thank you. You have been an icon, a legend
1: of the union movement
2: and uh, her legacy lives on today. As you said, there are some books around that if you wanted to search Zelda Toprano's name, you'll find them.
1: Oh, yeah, and you can find interviews online, so you can actually hear her voice, which is really, really wonderful. If you're um, connected to uh, a state library or um, local library, her books are usually there. And also, if you look at the Australian Trade Union Institute's history page, we've got quite a few tributes to her because... She deserves them. She does indeed.
2: Another great union history moment with our historical oracle, Dr Liam Byrne. And Dr Liam, we'll uh, catch up with you again next week on The Job.
3: Hey, it's Chris Garlock again. I got so interested in Zelda's story that I did a bit of poking around on YouTube and found a couple of fascinating updates to the story you just heard. In the first, Zelda reveals the real story behind how she got that famous chain. And then in a 2015 interview, she talks movingly about the ongoing fight for equal pay for women. We'll have both of those right after another Labor History in Two.
0: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. We often think of labor history as an urban movement happening on the shop floor. Yet farm workers have played an important an often-overlooked role in labor history. Such was the case today. The year was 1939. More than 1,500 Missouri farmers and their families began a highway sit-in. The action was organized by the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, one of the few unions in the 1930s that accepted both white and black members. The Southern Tenant Farmers Union had been formed in response to New Deal policies. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Agricultural Adjustment Administration was meant to aid the nation's farmers, who had been economically devastated due to the Great Depression. Yet little of this federal assistance found its way to the tenant farmers. Landowners kept most of the money for themselves. Displaced tenant farm families piled all of their possessions along the side of the highway in protest. These farm workers, their families, and all of their worldly possessions lined two major highways in the Missouri Delta. The tenant farmers braved frigid temperatures day after day. As a tactic, Organizers published the actions with photos and newsreels. The newsreels showed startling images of the impoverished farmers and their meager possessions huddled in the freezing cold. Embarrassed by the images, Missouri state authorities moved on the demonstrators and forced them off the highway and into areas the protesters called concentration camps. The actions did catch the attention of President Roosevelt, who directed the Farm Securities Administration to provide assistance, including funding for housing for some of the displaced workers. As John Hancock's Great Depression-era tenant farmer, union advocate, singer, songwriter, wrote, homeless, homeless we are, just as homeless as homeless can be. We don't get nothing for our labor, so homeless, homeless we are. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two.
3: Here's Zelda DePrano in her own words.
5: I was very nervous, and I had to get the chain, and that's another story in itself. I went and priced the chain to buy it, and I was shocked how expensive it was. So I went to one of the (laughs) trade unions. I'm not sure whether they call themselves seamen or the ship rights and dockers union and had some but they were on the wharf that's where they worked and so I went and saw the secretary of their union and I told him what I wanted to do and I wanted some chain and he and for and he said he'd give it to me if I never told anyone who gave it, because he knocked it off, he stole it. (laughs) And I never did tell anyone for about 20 years, uh, because I thought he might still be alive and uh, he might get into trouble. So I never said anything for uh, 20 years. They were all fired up and ready to make a song and dance about the gender pay
2: gap.
5: The day began with an early morning flash mob and later a group of nearly 80 protesters marched through Geelong, sending their message loud and clear. We're
2: here today for equal pay!
5: Veteran activist Zelda DePrano first chained herself in protest for equal pay in 1969, and today was her last stand. Oh, yes. When I, decided, I made the decision to, to have the chain up, and I had to get chained I didn't realise how expensive it was and so it all went off and uh, no no great fireworks or anything but we were there, we actually made the headlines so for the first time you know people knew that all the women weren't satisfied and uh, like one of the newspaper uh, Journalists said, "You know, oh, you're only here all on your own. You know how much, you know, how much do you think you're going to achieve by this?" And I can remember saying that this was only the beginning. And I said, oh, "I'm here alone today. Tomorrow there'll be two. The next day there'll be four. and The next day there'll be eight, and so it will happen." And it, and it has happened that way.
1: Having Zelda as part of the campaign at key points, particularly at the Rally for Equal Pay Day, um, was memorable to say the least. Yeah,
5: that was amazing. When I was invited to speak at the Trade Union Rally outside the Trades Hall, I had no idea what form this was going to happen or take or how many people they expected to come there and, and so I was a bit apprehensive and when I saw the crowds that had gathered there several thousand and mainly women I was astonished not only astonished But I was just so excited and thrilled to see this because for years I had gone to trade union meetings where we were lucky if there were five women there and not one of them saying anything. And here were these thousands of women and so enthusiastic and you could tell by their demeanor that they were so thrilled at being there and being able to participate in this big demonstration. And I was just so overcome emotionally because it's something I always wanted to see. And here I was looking at it
3: Oh, sisters, you, you've done me proud. Zelda DePrano from a 2015 interview, she died in 2018. Finally, here's Lola Wright, a feminist, educator, musician, and unionist who was involved in the campaign for equal pay for women teachers in New South Wales, Australia. The percentage of the male wage were you receiving, roughly? As compared to the blokes, what were you getting?
4: Uh, I suppose about two-thirds. But when we got equal pay, we got the same as them.
2: A... You fought for that?
4: Too right, I did. <laughs> I dreamt that I had equal pay. I tell you, brother, that ain't, hey, when you think of all the things I'm equal to. I got 10,000 in arrears. They'd been exploiting me for years. And then I dreamed what I was going to do. I dreamt I was equal to the laddies. My pay docket was just as big as daddy's. I've gone all social since my raise. I do my shopping at DJ's. I've ceased to be a regular at paddy's. I rang my boyfriend up to say, I'll call around for you today and take you to a dinner or a show. I'll drive my brand new Cadillac and if you don't get in the back, you're the sport that'll have to walk, you know. I dreamt that instead of getting thinner, my new diet made me look a winner. In cafes and in hotel bars, I dined on chook and caviar. I didn't have a sergeant's pie for dinner. I chanced upon an old roué who crept upon me just to say he'd like to see me in his flat alone. I said, old man, you're out of date since women got the extra rate. I've got a flat netchins of my own. (laughs)
0: Do national security concerns outweigh the right of workers to form a union? That question was being debated on this day in labor history. The year was 2003. The head of the Transportation Security Administration, James Loy, made the case that collective bargaining would be an impediment to the war on terrorism. He signed an order that prohibited unionization by passenger and baggage screeners. The move was just one of several that eroded federal workers' rights in the name of national security in the aftermath of 9-11. The TSA was founded in the months after the 9-11 attacks by the Bush administration. Prior to the TSA, screening was done by private contractors run by the airlines. With the new organization, more than 45,000 screeners became part of the federal workforce. Massachusetts Senator Teddy Kennedy disagreed with the Bush administration's position that these workers could not join a union. He released a statement saying, It's not Homeland Security, it's union busting. The TSA workers did not give up their fight to join a union. For the better part of a decade, they continued to organize and make their case. In 2011, the workers voted to become part of the American Federation of Government Employees. It was the largest union election by federal workers in United States history. There are limitations to the union, however, such as the screeners cannot go on strike. But the union can advocate for safe and fair workplace conditions. When the union was finally recognized, President of AFGE John Gage issued a statement. He declared, Today marks the recognition of a fundamental human right for 40,000 patriotic federal employees who have been disenfranchised since the inception of the agency. Today, nearly 16,000 screeners have joined the union. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.
3: That'll do it for this week's global edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to the On The Job podcast. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. And we've got a link in today's show notes. Our music today was Leave at 343 and the Equal Pay song. Leave at 343 is from Growing Up Gracefully, a six-part Australian television comedy documentary series created, written, and presented My sisters Hannah and Eliza Riley. It first aired in 2017. We've got a link to the terrific video in the show notes. The equal pay song was sung by Lola Wright, the feminist, educator, musician, and unionist, who was involved in the campaign for equal pay for women teachers in New South Wales, Australia. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Councils, Union City Radio, and. The Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pazak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time.
5: What do we do now?